Good morning, everybody. I'm excited to say that today we are beginning our series on the book of Revelation. Amen. And we're going to go verse by verse through the whole book. And I'm really glad to be doing that once again because we've been doing topical lessons a lot. And while topical lessons, they have a purpose, they have a place. They are not for a preacher, at least for this preacher, they're not my favorite. And that's because topics give a lot more leeway for a preacher to voice their own thoughts mm. and their own message rather than the word of God. You can kind of move around and just kind of pick what you want. And and so that's not always the motivation. I'm not saying that's the Light case it. because I've just done topical sermons and I was trying to do my best to faithfully communicate what scripture teaches about the end times that way. But the best way to do preaching and what we always have to go back to is verse by verse teaching a scripture. And topical lessons are the exception to the rule, rather than the other way around. And so today, before we get started in Revelation chapter 1, I want to open up with a question. And really preface that question with an interesting fact. So the word revelation, okay, when it talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word for revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis means to unveil. Okay, so to disclose something previously hidden. And when we think about the apocalypse, generally there's a negative connotation, right? I mean, most people in pop culture, from movies and books and songs, apocalypse sounds like judgment, yeah. you know, devastation, the end of the world. And while it's true that judgment is associated with the end of the world, as we will see in the book of Revelation, the primary purpose of this book is to reveal not judgment, but to reveal a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And rather than the book deterring people because of its detailed depiction of catastrophe, it's meant to bring us into a place where we can know Jesus more. And of course, that does for a Christian something very different than it would for an unbeliever. When an unbeliever has an encounter with the Lord of this message, it should bring about conviction. It should bring about the fear of the Lord, a wise fear that brings them to a place of understanding where they accept Jesus as their Savior. But for those in this room, and for many who are listening to this, if you've already received Jesus as your Savior, then the book of Revelation should not put terror in your heart, but it should fill you with joy and hopeful anticipation. And so that's why I wanted to open up this message with a passage from Peter, actually. So in Second Peter, starting in verses... Um, 16 of chapter 1 it says and he's speaking on behalf of other disciples here for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received from god the father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Those last words right there, a light shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, the day of what? The day of his coming, the day star arise in your hearts. I hope that as we go through the book of Revelation, that every time we approach the text, that day star 
will arise in our hearts, mm -hmm. that we will have a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus. I know that may sound mystical and I don't intend it to come across that way, but we can have a full experiential relationship with Jesus. And, and the way we do that is by encountering him in his word. And so my question for you today is, have you seen Jesus? And if you have, what I'm about to say to you is pertinent. If you haven't seen Jesus, what I'm going to say to you as we study these words in Revelation, it's not going to have the same application, of course. Because for us as believers, when we read Revelation, we are coming to a refreshing knowledge. When I say refreshed, you know, a reminder coming back to a knowledge of the Savior that we already received. I received Jesus when I was six years old. If you haven't received Jesus, then we want you to have that abundant life. But before you can have that, you need to accept the Lord's gift of eternal life through faith alone, by his grace. But if you have seen Jesus and you can answer yes to that, you can say, Peter, the day star has arisen in my heart. The next question is this. Are you renewing this vision of him daily? And it's not just here. It's not just here on Sunday morning that we ought to do that. I'm really challenged as I've studied Revelation, and I pray God will continue to challenge me to have that encounter with him as I study personally his word in my own time. And so it is my goal as I teach through Revelation, yeah, we're going to get into some deep topics. We're going to look at some interesting detail. Uh, we're going to try to rightly divide the word of truth, but at the same time, I want it to be devotional. I want to teach the word of God in such a way that you come away from it and say, I just met with Jesus today. That's what I want the goal of this message to be. So are you renewing that vision of him daily? Let's try to do that this morning. And this is Palm Sunday. I think about 2000 years ago, the people that lined the streets of Jerusalem when Jesus entered, the disciples, the believers that were present, and there were many believers that were present, they saw him. You know, they saw past the humility of Jesus riding on the back of a humble donkey. They saw the Savior. They saw his glory. Even before Peter saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he had said prior to that, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so while we have not seen the glory of Jesus like Peter did on the Mount of Transfiguration, and while we have not seen this visibly like John does, in chapter one that we'll read about, we can have an encounter with his glory and with his love. And I hope that our hearts will cry out today, Hosanna, just as much as people cried out the same 2000 years ago, Hosanna means save us. And while we as Christians, we've already been saved and I've taught eternal security consistently and I will consistently do so in the future. There is a type of deliverance that the Christian needs in an ongoing manner. We need to be sanctified daily. We talked about this on Wednesday night, and I'm encouraged by that study, but we need to be sanctified. We need to be delivered from fear. We need to be delivered from sin that we struggle with. We need a deliverance. And for those who are in this room, I believe that you know we are believers seeking to honor the Lord. Um, I, I see all of you, and I recognize you as faithful men and women of God. We still need deliverance from anxiety and fear because the world is oppressive. And we just talked about this earlier in our prayer time. The God of this world, the false God of this world, the devil, is trying to blind people. And that discourages us greatly. And so we have to come back to the word of God to be refreshed. And if we're not going to the well of eternal life, the well that's already in us through the Holy Spirit, if we're not doing that daily, we're not going to have the encouragement we need to be priests of God and representatives of his grace. 
And so having said all this, let's have a word of prayer before we jump into Revelation chapter 1. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray God that you will just speak through me because I have I have been enriched so much by this study throughout the week, and I feel like I've had that encounter with you, Lord. I've spent time with you in prayer. I've tried to do my best to listen to what you would have me know so I can share it with others. And I pray, God, that you will just, you will organize my thoughts, that you will help me to express them in a way that uh, powerfully impacts those who are here in this room, impacts me, and obviously, God, all those who are listening through the podcast. I pray, God, that you will once again be with the prayer requests that were mentioned earlier I pray for these people who are burdened in different ways. We pray for our country and we pray for the world. And of course, Lord, we pray that you will come back soon. We love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to Revelation chapter 1. And today we are going to cover just eight verses. I'm not going to rush through Revelation. It's just too deep. It's too rich. And if you really enjoy something, obviously you don't want to rush through it. And so I've enjoyed going through Revelation 1 and uh, picking my way through it. So we're going to look at it verse by verse, but let's read the whole passage together first, and then we'll break it down. So in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I think we can all agree there is a lot there to unpack. Mm-hmm. So if you have the notes that I passed out to you, the first thing that catches my eye as I read this is a revelation from beyond. Sometimes we get desensitized to the fact that when we're reading scripture, especially the book of Revelation, that we are dealing with the supernatural. And that brings to mind this idea that revelation is not a project, but an encounter between the maker and what he has made. When we study scripture, especially deep scripture that's challenging to interpret like revelation, it's really easy to get bogged down in the details. And I think there are opposite extremes here. We have to be careful about it. So there are some people who on one end will get into the details so much that while they may have a good interpretation, they may understand the text. Well, they fail to miss the application of the text. And this has been me before I've taught revelation and we spend an hour talking about the, the wars of the end times, talking about the details of the various judgments and, you know, where's the rapture and all this, okay? The chronology of it, you know, you can get really deep into that and you can lose sight of the person that it's all about. When we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ, is this just giving us information or is it revealing Jesus Christ himself, the person, the Savior, the Lord? And so we got to be careful that we don't get too bogged down in the details. But of course, on the other end, there are people who will say the details are too confusing that it's impossible for us to understand. 
So let's not even bother with that. Let's just allegorize and spiritualize the whole book. And we can't do that either because God did not give us this book full of dark sayings. It is called a revelation. So if you go into the book with prop, yeah, I mean, it, it is revealed. It's not concealed. So that means if you go into this book with some basic hermeneutic principles, some basic ways to interpret the Bible properly, you can understand it. And so I've always been surprised talking with people whenever I express my love for the book. They'll say to me, I, I just don't understand why Christians like the book so much. It seems so confusing. It's so, yeah, so cryptic. That's a good word for it. And, and I'm surprised by that because having sat under the teaching of my grandfather, both grandfathers, okay, who are really good experts when it comes to Revelation, and one of them is with the Lord, so he knows all about it now. But whenever sitting under them, they made it make sense to me. Good, sound Bible interpretation. So when I approach the book, I don't feel intimidated by it. In fact, it's exciting because it's a clear picture to me. There are, of course, things that we don't know, but in general, it is a clear picture of what's going to happen in the future. And that's meant to instill in us, like I've mentioned before, encouragement and a sense of hope and security. Like we know what's going to happen. God gave this to us so we would know. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants these things. So it's not meant to be one big mystery. And God's not saying, oh, what's a puzzle? Put it together. It's meant to reveal truth. And as long as you have good Bible interpretation principles under your belt, when you go into it, then you should have no problem. Um, but I wanted to read this quote by Charles Spurgeon, which I think was a really good one. He said, the aim of the book of Revelation is not to lead us into speculation, but is meant for practical purposes. Things written concerning the future are not intended so much to gratify our curiosity as much as to stimulate our watchfulness. The main objective is to keep us constantly on the lookout. That's good. And so I, I really like that mentality. And that's the mentality that's going to drive the study throughout this entire book. We're going to look at the details but we're not going to fall short of understanding the practical nature of the book as well, which is to understand this person who supernaturally condescends our creator, the one who made everything, who has all the mysteries, you know, in his hand, he's revealing those to us as servants so we can benefit from them. The next thing is we have a mediator to bridge the gap. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God, the father gave unto him. So when we think about Jesus, we think about him as an intercessor. Okay, in particular, the book of Revelation highlights, I believe, his superiority, his sovereignty, uh, his divinity. I think that this book probably furnishes a believer with more proofs of Jesus' divine nature than any other book. But the idea is that the divine Father hands unto the divine Son this revelation so that way we can have access to it. The things of the Father in the hands of the Son and because the Son is the Son of Man, He bridges the gap and brings those things to us. And this isn't just through the Incarnation when Jesus removed our sin. Okay, I want to push it back a little bit further before we talk about the Incarnation. Consider the fact that God is eternal. Can we even wrap our minds around that? He's infinite. I, I have a hard time imagining infinity. I, I get the concept, but actually really understanding it, I, I fall short of that <laughs> infinitely. And so... When we think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son is called the Word. And in John 1, the same guy who wrote this book, Revelation, the Apostle John, he speaks of no one seeing the Father but the Son. And the Son is the one who reveals the Father. And so God, the Father, is infinitely above us. The divine nature is infinitely beyond us. But through the ministry of the Son, 
long before he came down to earth as a man, he was already bridging the gap for us. I think about God the Son visiting Abraham with those two angels before the whole incident of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think about even before sin existed at all when God the Son spoke to Adam and Eve and walked with them in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And so just take a moment and think about the majesty of God, how high above us He is, and how far He has to go because of how far we are away, apart from sin, just the fact that we're finite. And that will give you a sense of appreciation that the fact that this supernatural revelation is even in our hands today and that we can comprehend it is because the Son has bridged an infinite gap for us. And when God created, imagine, He created these people that, when I think about myself, I'm so small. You know, He sits above the circle of the earth, it says in Isaiah 40, and He looks upon us as grasshoppers. Even smaller than that. The fact that He would actually care about us, given how small we are. I mean, how many of y'all go around thinking about all the small things that you interact with every day. You don't give it a second thought, the microscopic world around you. You know, and it takes effort for us to even think about these things. We don't really think about them until we have to think about them. You know, as kids going to high school, having to learn about cell structure, we don't think about that. But to think that God created us and he designed us to know him despite how small we are. But then, of course, on top of all that, we have a sin problem, don't we? We have, if you can even imagine it, beyond that infinite separation already existing between creator and creature, we have an additional gap. And that gap, that spance, is sin. And so, while God had no problem bridging the gap in creating us and revealing himself to us, nothing held him back from that. It was his delight to interact and fellowship with his creations. Now, because of our sin, there's a problem that has to be fixed. And as I was just sitting here with my son, Jamie, and we were singing that song and we were listening to Scott playing that song about the blood. And I considered that God, the father had to send his son. And I emphasize so much the son sending himself because he was willingly involved in it. Right. But though Jesus willingly came, imagine the father giving his son his precious son, and knowing what it would mean, knowing the kind of pain and suffering and wrath that, that would be experienced by his son. And then I, I sat there with my little three-year-old son, and I thought I would never give my son right. up for someone who didn't deserve it. I, would, I wouldn't give him up for anybody. And to think that God the Father gave his son for me. Yes, Jesus came. Uh, he willingly came. So he wanted to come. But imagine the Father having to say, Yes, yes, I know you're willing, but I'm willing to let you go. I'm willing to give you to the world. Mm. It's, it's something we sometimes don't highlight, right? We highlight Jesus laying himself down. We, right. we see his love, but sometimes we fail to highlight the father giving up his precious son. And when Jesus suffered on the cross, he really suffered. It wasn't like, okay, God's incapable of pain, so it really wasn't much of a sacrifice. When, when Jesus became a man, long before that, God the father and God the son too, but God the father knew what that would mean. Abraham. Yes, absolutely. And so we need to remind ourselves that even though God is infinitely above us and he seems so untouchable at some times, he knew exactly what it would be for his son to suffer and die on the cross. Mm. And he willingly gave his son. And Jesus cried out for Yes, God. he did. And he knew that his son would that do that. Horrible. He knew his son would say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken mm -hmm. me? And he gave us yeah, Jesus anyways. It had to be for God. Amen. Uh, very, very hard, but I'm glad he did it. But I'm glad he did it. And this excludes 
This idea of a mediator bridging the gap, it excludes all pride and all fear. When we think about our position in God's house, we have no fear. That's the most initial reaction that I have when I think about all this because God has removed my fear by saving me from my sins, but it also excludes all pride. We have to remember that this access we have to Jesus, this relationship we have, because we as Christians have that, we only have it because of the infinite Son bridging the gap between us and the Father. And that leads us to our next point. The next point has to do with a mystery disclosed through a messenger. Look at verse 1 again. It says, He sent it, this revelation, through his angel. He signified it. The word signify here a lot of people think refers to signs and symbols, and no doubt that's included because revelation is full of signs and symbols, but the main meaning of the word in Greek is to indicate. So simply, he's sending a message and he's indicating it through an angel. So this mystery is disclosed through a messenger. This messenger, in this case, is an angel, a heavenly spirit. And the exact way he disclosed it, commentators differ on it, but it's likely that he put a vision before John. So Albert Barnes, he suggests this, and I think he's probably right, that since Revelation is primarily something that John sees, how did John see this? Who put before John's eyes, before his mind's eye, all of these things which are vividly described in the book? It was probably the angel that did this. Okay, Angels are supernatural beings. I'm sure they're fully capable of giving a vision to people. And it appears that the angel was involved in this. But it reminds me, guys, that just as angels serve as God's ambassadors from heaven, we carry this revelation to the world as high priests. We, in effect, and I mentioned this to the kids this morning, we have one foot in heaven because our citizenship is of heaven. But we're still in the world left behind. We must never forget that. This supernatural mystery that's been disclosed to us, we are to then take it to other people. And so do we do that? And not just to the lost. I'm not just thinking about sharing the gospel with the lost. That's obviously primary in our minds. It should be. But do we represent God to each other? We talk to our kids all the time about showing love to one another. When we show love to one another, we have to remember that God is love. And so when we're showing love, we ought to be conceiving that in our minds as showing God. Not just to the lost world, but also to believers. That's what a priest is. A priest has access to God, but then takes what is learned, takes what is seen, and it communicates that to other people. I think about the first person who led me to Jesus. Um, I don't know her name. I, I have a vague recollection of her face, but I'll never forget the picture in my mind, I think, of being in that room and seeing her stand in front of all of us little kids. You know, I was six years old. Most Sunday of the yeah, Sunday, it was actually Children's Church, I believe, uh, because I, I went from that meeting to the car, went straight to the car afterwards. So I think it was Children's Church, what but church was it? it was uh, Burnt Hickory. And so I can remember her sharing the gospel. I can remember understanding it and saying the prayer to receive Jesus as my Savior. And I can remember the enthusiasm that came after and how my mom, you know, she was so happy with me. She shared that enthusiasm. My dad was a little skeptical because he got saved later in life. But eventually even he recognized that I was genuine when I received the Lord. But I think about those people that brought the gospel to me. There was a time in my life where I wasn't a Christian. There was a time in my life where I wasn't a priest of God. I was part of the world. And there was somebody in my life, whether it was that teacher, whether it was Nana, you sharing the gospel with your grandkids, whether it was my mom, 
All right, I receive from these high priests of God. When I say high priest, we only have one high priest, obviously, but they're in effect sent from on high to the world. And we sometimes fail to realize that because we're down here with everybody else, right? But we have this amazing commission and sometimes we fail to appreciate how important it is. And that brings us next to number two, verse two, who bear record of the word of God, who bear record, John and the testimony of Jesus Christ of all the things that he saw. Notice it's called the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It is just as much Jesus's word as it is the father's word, which again highlights the equality between the father and the son. But it's not called the angel's word, by the way. And it's not called John's word. Uh, a lot of old uh, Bibles, King James would say it's the revelation of St. John. In a sense, it's the revelation that he received and passed it on. But truly, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God. And it only changed hands. It went from his hand. He's the author to that of the angel, to that of John. And then John passed it on. You see this ministry of delegation. And so that's the first point on your uh, notes there. A grateful recipient fulfilling his call. Are we those grateful recipients that are fulfilling our call? Because it's meant to change hands. It's not meant to stay in our hands. This message from beyond that's brought to us by Christ, it came maybe not to me through an angel, but the word angel after all means messenger. And there was a messenger in my life when I was six years old. And from then, I can't tell you how many times it's passed hands. It's gone from me to somebody else. And we should continue to do that. So revelation is not a, a mission uh, of self-centered gratification, but it's a personal delegation. Sometimes we hold on to the goodness of God. We read it. Uh, we delight in it, but it doesn't change hands as often as it should. Verse three, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. And so we have a pressing choice. That's the fifth point, an audience with a pressing choice. Revelation gives us a promise. It's not predetermined. It's not predetermined that people will accept it. It's not predetermined that Christians have already accepted it. will continue to pass it on to other people. So this blessing is conditional. Blessed is he that readeth. That means there's a special blessing for Christians who've already been saved that read this book. There are actually seven beatitudes, uh, seven uh, statements of blessing in this book. And this is the first one. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. There's two elements there first. It doesn't say blessed is he who understands everything in the book. Okay. <laughs> Praise God. It doesn't mean that because no one would receive the blessing. And I thought that was an interesting point that was made by someone I was reading in a commentary. Like it doesn't say you have to understand it all. It says blessed is he that reads someone who simply believes in Jesus's words here that a blessing is given to those who read and who pursues that blessing will receive it. And part of that going along with that is hearing the words of the prophecy. And that's not just hearing them going in one ear and out the other. That is listening to the words of the prophecy. So what do we get from it? What do we get from this prophecy? Well, we get to see Jesus in his glory in a special way. When we read the gospel accounts, we see Jesus in his humility. We see Jesus healing. We do see a taste of his power, uh, but we ultimately in the gospel accounts see more than anything else, Jesus heading towards the cross. And when we see the resurrection, even in his resurrection, Jesus humbly appears in many cases. He, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he walks and talks with them. They don't perceive his glory. They don't fall on their faces before him. But in Revelation chapter 1, in a special way, we see Jesus as the Ancient of Days and as the Son of Man, bringing all of it together, Old Testament, New Testament, consummating it all in one full picture. And so if you don't read Revelation, 
it's not that you can't get these elements separately in other places, but it brings it all together. And so we get to see Jesus in a special way. But of course, obviously, it, it puts in our hands this knowledge that the time is short. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know the day or the hour. It could happen any day. And as we watchfully read these words, we see us getting very close. You know, the world society is looking more and more like the world society depicted in this book. And that gets us excited. It fills us with enthusiasm. It's, it fills us with gratitude so we can pass it on. And it can, again, change hands to other people. And it also is very personal, too. It, it I think it gets me on my toes. It reminds me that life is short and I'm not going to spend eternity here. I'm eventually going to pass from this life, whether Jesus comes back or I die first, whichever happens. Um, so I've only got so much time. And reading about the end of the world reminds me that it's passing. That's right. There is an end. There is a passing uh, to this world. It's wearing down. It's It's winding down. And I don't know when the end is going to come for me. I don't know when the end is going to come for the world at large. And so I ought to be about God's business. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of different blessings we can get from this. And obviously there's a blessing for the unbelievers too, who read this book. Because in reading this book or hearing the word shared by a priest of God, shared by a Christian, gives them an opportunity to experience a healthy dose of fear, which will lead them to believe in Jesus. And so this is something I do think we should share. And that's why the last sermon that I preached had to do with including the idea of the Lord's return in the gospel when we share it. But it's got a little bit for everything. Uh, look at verse number four here. It says, John to the seven churches. Why just seven? There are more churches in Asia, in this province. There are more churches in Asia Minor. He doesn't mention the Colossians. He doesn't mention the Galatians. So why? Well, these churches we're going through certain things that typify churches of all times, okay? Because they represent different kinds of Christian congregations, as we'll see. And I do think they also forecast church history. I think that each church does represent a different age. And if that's the case, guys, we are very, very close to the end because we find ourselves in the Laodicean age for sure. But uh, the idea is that it's a complete God. He is a complete God. For a whole people. We have seven churches and it says seven spirits. Look at verse four. It says the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which uh, which was and which is to come. So past, present, future. Okay. God is not bound by time. He is eternally sufficient for us. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Why seven? Seven, as Scott's already mentioned, represents completion throughout this book. We have seven seals, we have seven judgments, we have seven vials. Seven consistently depicts God in his perfection. But I also think that seven spirits corresponds to the seven churches here. I think it's a complete God for a complete church. Let's think about this. When we read about the church at Ephesus, when we read about the church um, of Laodicea, we're seeing different aspects of the same body, right? Are there seven different churches, seven, seven different bodies of Christ? No, no they represent, okay? different aspects of the same church, the same body. And so the seven spirits, let's not think that there are seven holy spirits. It's not seven angels of each. Just well, it's like capitalized in my version. It's capitalized. The seven spirits. spirits. Yes, yes. And that's because this is no doubt referring to the you Holy mean Spirit. Not seven churches. There are seven churches. Yes. Se seven seven congregations that existed in the first century. Yes. Seven congregations. 
but I'm saying that each church is representing, okay, the whole church, right. okay, the whole body of Christ. Right. And the seven spirits, they're representing God in his completeness, God in his perfection, all of his attributes, okay? And so this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But again, we shouldn't think that there are seven Holy Spirits. Right. There's just one Holy Spirit, and this is part of the Trinity. If you read verse 4, it mentions from him which is and which was and which is to come. That's no doubt a reference to the Father. Then from the seven spirits which are before his throne. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit in all of his plenitude and all of his attributes. And then verse 5, from Jesus Christ. Father, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. They're not always mentioned in the exact same order of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you look in some of the letters of Paul, he doesn't mention them always in that exact same order that we do. But the point is, the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit who is a complete God for his whole people. So nothing's left out. Nothing is given without, uh, or nothing is given with limited duration. Uh, we have an eternal God and we have a Holy Spirit who is not just sufficient to meet all of our needs, but he perceives all of our needs. And so when we read through these different books, it's impossible for a Christian to not read these seven letters to the seven churches and not to see them in those letters and to not see God speaking to them because all the struggles of the church for the entire church age are represented in those letters. And of course, we're going to go through them one by one in our series. But the first point that we should get just at the outset, and we'll get into it in more depth later on, is that we have a complete God for a whole people. The seven churches aren't just these churches that lived 2,000 years ago in Western Turkey and it deals with them and not with us. God's writing a consummate book that ties together all the different peoples, the Israelites, the Gentiles, the bride, bringing them together in the church. So he's talking to everybody. So even if we may not resonate with these people in all of their cultural customs or in the way that they dressed or in what they were facing at that time in history, God in his sovereignty and in his omniscience, he's taking these seven churches for a reason. He could have taken any church, but he's not just randomly picking churches to talk about. It's because these churches pertain to everybody in the body of Christ, no matter where you live in the church age, including us in the 21st century. All right, so we have a complete God for his whole people. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. So faithful witness represents him as a prophet. Even before he became a man, he was the Logos, the word of God, the son of God as the angel of the Lord appearing in the Old Testament. He is the faithful witness. He bridges the gap. He is the first begotten of the dead. This refers to his priesthood. The reason we will have a resurrection in the future. The reason we have access to God is because Jesus first descended in his death and he was risen in his resurrection three days later. And then the kings of the earth represents him as king. So we have prophet, priest, and king. We have an exalted savior who's fully capable of delivering us and satisfying all of our needs. Uh, I think that this is something that can scare people. The idea of a savior like Jesus who is exalted, unbounded, fully God. He has all powerful or all power and he has all knowledge at his disposal. That can intimidate you. It really can. That's why I think people prefer to worship gods historically. Let's worship Zeus. 
or worship Aphrodite. We'll worship these gods who are basically like humans. We can easily put them in a box. You know, they each represent one thing or another. You got Poseidon, he's the god of the ocean. And then you got Zeus, he's the god of the sky. But in Jesus, we have a god who is complete, exalted above all problems, exalted above all rebellion, and he will call all rebellion into account. For a Christian, though, should that scare us? No. Because look at verse 5 at the very end of the verse. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Notice he loved us first. It doesn't say he washes us so he can love us. He already loved us and that was the motivating factor in him dying on the cross for our sins and coming back so he could wash us. So point 8 on your notes is a humble Savior. So we have an exalted Savior. 5A. Uh, yes. It, it, well, so 5A is actually uh, an exalted Savior, and uh, 5B is a humble Savior. So we have a humble Savior. Jesus is not tyrannical. He is eager to bless. So I don't think of Jesus and all his power and all his knowledge and his eternity as intimidating. In fact, it comforts me. It's like being sheltered. It's like being inside of a house and closing you on all sides. You have the floor underneath you. You have the walls around you. You have a roof over your head. And while some people may feel like that constricts, okay, they may get a little claustrophobic, that same claustrophobia, that analogy applies to people when it comes to God. They don't want a God who is over them and all around them and under them because they know that they have sin, that they're guilty for. But for a believer who's already gone to the Lord and received forgiveness of that sin, being hemmed in when the storm's outside, that's an arc of hope for us. I mean, that's something we're excited about. And so when we read this book with all of its judgments, it's not something we ought to fear because we have God sheltering us in the ark, which is Jesus Christ. All right, looking at verse number six, it says he'd made his kings and priests unto God and his father. So when we think of Jesus coming down and saving us, he doesn't just come down to where we're at, but he brings us up to where he's at. He makes us kings and priests unto God and his father. Think of the humility of that. I mean... God would have right to pride because he's righteous, because he's powerful, because he created everything and it all belongs to him. He could have just let us off the hook and said, okay, you've sinned against me. I love you enough to let you off the hook. Okay, I'll, I'll remove your head from the chopping block. But he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just come down to us and set us free, but he brings us up. So that's something we also fail to appreciate, I think. But... Uh, in the next part of the verse, 6b, it says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That amen right there can be supplied, even if it wasn't written in the text, by every single Christian who reads the verse. Mm. So Jesus is a Savior who should be worshipped. And when I think about worship, guys, uh, I think that if you can remove our fear, our fear of God's power, and uh, you can also remove maybe a fear that he's not powerful enough. Okay, because there's the fear that God's too powerful. He's going to hold you into account. There's also the fear that God may be too weak and not hinder your problems. But if we have those fears removed, knowing that we have an exalted Savior and a humble Savior, then we can bask in his worth. We can bask in his indescribable worth. I don't know about y'all, but I want somebody to worship. Mm. I want somebody perfect. Like I've got this infinite chasm inside me as a created being and i want to know who put that there because that gap is infinite okay in height in depth and width and i need somebody who can fit that who can supply 
the bread that's going to fill my hunger and the water that's going to quench my thirst. And Jesus is the one who does that. He should be worshiped. And that's why we should be eager to not just bask in his goodness, but again, change hands, share it with others. But verse number seven reminds us something. This one's, it's a little scary. Verse number seven, we're talking about a savior who will be worshiped. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Even so, those words are the words of a believer who knows where they stand, but at the same time knows where other people stand. Even so, amen. Um, there will be a Savior who will be disclosed to all, even if he's not disclosed to certain people now. He's revealed to us now already through the Holy Spirit. We believe this stuff. There are a lot of people who don't. This is not just talking about the Israelites. I mean, it does hint back to Zechariah when it speaks of those who pierced him uh, wailing. In that case, though, it's actually a positive wailing because it results in the repentance of Israel. This, on the other hand, says all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. So this seems to indicate that there will be two types of wailing. One's positive. The Jews will come to repentance during this time of judgment, even if they're asleep now. However, the rest of the world, there will be a wailing when they realize that they were wrong. Despite all the evidence that was shared with them before that time period and during that time period. And so we have a Savior who will be worshipped. But for us, for believers, we can say, even so, amen. And that is the... Um, the 11th point on your outline, a cry of the chosen revelation is a book prompts the heart of faith to say, amen from first to last. We can say amen, not just to the goodness of the Lord who's deserving of worship. We can even say, even so amen to his judgment. And while I don't want him to judge people, I know that his judgment is just And I know that the world will not repent completely because it's a narrow way that leads to life. And that's not a time period, like I said, that I'm I'm looking forward to, first and foremost. I I would rather see the people repent. That's my desire. But eventually, when sin is judged, all those who stand with God at that time will be able to say, Amen. You know, I've heard this quote before, but one day we will be praising God for judging our loved ones that are not believers. It's hard to, so hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine, so but when we are, we you're, when we are removed from this world yeah. and we no longer have the flesh and we see Jesus as he really is, mm-hmm. when we see sin as it really is, mm-hmm. we will be thankful that we are no longer in it right. and we will be thankful that it's judged. Yeah. And so that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around, but that is uh, a solemn reminder that revelation gives us. And verse eight, the last verse, The last verse. I am Alpha and Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last. The A to Z. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Who's speaking here? This is the same who's referred to in verse 7. The one who cometh. This is referring to Jesus. Notice these are words that a lot of people would think would only apply to the Father. Because there are some heretics. I will call them that because that's what they are. They will deny that Jesus is God. They will say that he's just a man. There are a lot of Unitarians, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, cults that are thriving on the internet, especially, okay, because it's really easy to put stuff out there and uh, to publish information that's false. And a lot of people are trapped into these false beliefs because of it. But when Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega, we have to realize this isn't a different Alpha and Omega than the Father. He's the same Alpha and Omega 
Okay, they're they're not separate gods. They are one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what is said of that's right. So when we call the Father Alpha and Omega, the same applies to Jesus, and the Father, he can expect people to worship his Son because the Son is just like him. The same cannot be said for us. We're adopted into the family. We're born into the family. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God, which is. And which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. And on a practical side of things, and we'll wrap it up with this. Revelation reminds us to not limit an unlimited God with our fears. And I'm going to share with you a quote because it was recently St. Patty's Day, one of my favorite holidays. People don't understand it, okay, because they have just been told by culture that it's about getting drunk. But it's not. It's about a man of God who, like John, took what he saw of God, took what he knew of God, and he shared it to people in a dark place. Careful, Patrick. And so let's look at what St. Patrick says here, or at least what is attributed to him, and I think we can all agree with this. Christ with me, Christ before me. Christ behind me, Christ within me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ at my right, and Christ at my left. Revelation is not meant to fill us with fear, but rather to reinforce our assurance with the sorry, big word, immutability of God. That means God is unchanging. And since the future is as settled as the past, we can stand firm in the present. What we're reading today, even though it has not happened from our perspective eternally, it's set in stone. It's done. And so the last one on your notes is Jesus is an omnipotent ground of all. He's the ground of everything. He's the ground of creation. He's the ground of redemption. He's the ground of the past. He's the ground of the present as we are sanctified every day. And he's the ground of the future whenever we receive our glorified bodies and the kingdom comes in this world. He's the ground of everything. So we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to think that he can't supply our needs. And we have no reason to doubt that he is going to keep every promise that he has made to us. That's what Revelation is about. And so... Hopefully that was a blessing to y'all. It was a blessing to me and we will continue to be blessed starting next week and every week after as we go through the book.